Bibles, we're going to Philippians chapter 2. And there's a couple of announcements I've got tucked in here I forgot. Ladies, there is Ladies Fellowship. I believe it's this coming Saturday, the 27th at 1 p.m. at Sister Allison's house. I think Sister Natalie was handing out little flyers. If you don't have one, see Sister Natalie after the service. It has the details that you need. Young people, the 3rd of May, there is a youth service here at the church at 7.30. Brother Jonathan or Sister Jolina can give you any more information. And also in advance notice for the young people, on the 18th of May, there is a combined youth event mini golf with the youth from Brother Paulus' church at Wanneroo Botanic Gardens. There is a cost involved and you can see Brother Moses or the youth committee about that. That's just a heads up so you can start mowing a few extra lawns or carrying favour with your parents so they're more likely to help you get to that youth event and give you a little bit of money. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, starting to read at verse 6. says, Who, speaking of Jesus... Being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Amen. History tells us that about 460 years before the birth of Christ, there was a Greek physician or doctor whose name was Hippocrates. He is considered by some to be the father of modern medicine. He's apparently quoted as having said that that for extreme diseases, extreme methods of cure or treatment are most suitable. The idea that he was conveying was that while there were certainly guidelines for normal practice when treating the sick, in some situations because of the life-threatening and urgent nature of an illness or a disease, it may be necessary to try something extreme or beyond the boundaries of normal practice. And it is believed that this quote from Hippocrates is where we get the expression and the title for my message this morning, Desperate Times Call for Desperate Measures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your people in your house, and you know every heart that is here. You know what we need this morning, and I pray that your word would pierce our hearts, Lord God, that when need be, it would bring conviction, but not condemnation. Lord, that we would desire to respond to you, to take advantage of your grace and your mercy. I ask you for your anointing today upon this vessel that is only clay, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It is the Easter weekend, according to the calendar and to the traditions of society. It is a time when, particularly in the Western world, many people turn their attention briefly to remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, you've done any study or looked into it all, you'll understand that Easter and Christmas have become religious festivals that Orthodox religion has adopted to line up with certain pagan celebrations. And so we understand that the reality is it's not a holy day or a holy week. But having said that, it is never a bad thing to remember the cross. 
And if in a once a year pause, we're able to show somebody how the cross affects every day of the year. And I'm okay with that. Amen. We live in a world that preaches tolerance. And I'm going to say some reasonably straight things this morning, and hopefully they'll be said in the way they're meant, that the Lord means them, not the way I mean them. The world that says that we ought to respect everyone else, the choices, their behaviors, and their lifestyles. And at face value, or at least in theory, that seems like a nice thing to do. Seems an appropriate mindset to have, but the problem is that none of us live on an island and that our lives affect one another's lives. And the way that we live and the choices that we make and the lifestyles that we adopt then affect our society. To give you an example, a very, very glaring example of this is the chaos that exists in the area of human sexuality in our society. The practice of all manner of sexual behavior and the recent completely unscientific addition of being apparently able to define sex and gender in whatever way that you please if this was something that we might be able to just say, well, that's just somebody else's opinion. But the problem is these things impact our society at the level of basic human identity and the definition of marriage, of family, and of relationships. And it is not possible to promote such thinking in isolation. It does not occur in a vacuum or in a bubble where nobody else is affected by those philosophies or behaviors because these things are being pushed, not just chosen. They are so corrupt and twisted that these are being imposed upon our children as compulsory education. Now, if this was just, well, this is my choice, you let me do what I want to do, that's one thing. I still don't agree with those choices. But this idea that you can just do what you want and mind your own business is a fairy tale. Because these things affect all of society. The problem also is that any opinion or conviction expressed that disagrees with this agenda is quickly shouted down as hate speech or some kind of phobia. That we're afraid of some things. I'm, I'm afraid of sin because of its consequences not because of the action. But Scripture, regardless of society, has never been unclear about what sin is, nor how God feels about sin. And the church must never be afraid to preach and teach against sin. Amen. Again, as I prayed before we started to preach, conviction, not condemnation. Because the message of the gospel, the preaching and teaching of the word of God, must always include the message that God loves the sinner. Amen. But we have to very quickly understand with that statement that the love of God is demonstrated to us to save us from our sin, not to overlook it or leave us in it. And humanity right now is at a tipping point where such is the wickedness of mankind that God's wrath, I believe, is ready to be unleashed. And let me say this again for the sake of being rep repetitive and not wanting to be misunderstood. 
If anything I teach or preach about this morning touches a nerve in anybody, it is not with condemnation. Because the Bible says that such were some of you. All of us are sinners. Washed. Sanctified. Justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. And in the Gospels, and also in the Epistles, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that took place in the Old Testament are mentioned, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New, as warnings or examples of what happens, what is the end result of the ungodly who reject God. It's His words, not mine. In Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 17, both chapters warn us that when the Lord returns and judgment is poured out, that it will be like it was in the days of Noah prior to the flood. We only have to look at what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah and what he did to the world during the flood to understand God's perspective of sin. In Noah's day, people were doing whatever they pleased. The thoughts of their hearts were continually evil, the Bible said, and nobody was listening to the preacher of righteousness. We live in a world that very much parallels the days of Noah. It seems to me that just when man can't get any more wicked, he comes up with a new and creative way to defy God and to create some new form of perversion and wickedness. And these are desperate times. Spiritually, I believe we're living in desperate times. Sin, and I'm going to be talking a lot about sin this morning, but sin is not a small problem. It's not a little thing that requires a slight adjustment or a modification. Sin is the reason that we die. Sin is the reason for sickness and for disease. Let me clarify that. I'm not saying if you have a sickness or you have a disease that God is punishing your actions, but sickness and disease are in humanity as a whole because of sin. Death and the things that cause us to die are a product of sin. Sin is the reason for violence, for murder, for greed, for all forms of immorality and for perversion of every kind. Sin is the source of the drug epidemic that we're facing in our society. Sin is the reason that men's hearts and minds are failing. Sin is the reason that young people are overcome with anxiety and despair. Sin is the reason that marriages fail and children are abused and people don't know who they belong to or who cares for them or who they're supposed to be. I'm trying to paint a picture this morning of how bad sin really is because I think sometimes we forget. We need to understand what it is that we were stained with. Because in every generation, man has been in desperation because of sin. But sin always compounds, increases its instruction, its devastation, its destruction from generation to generation without the intervention of the power of God. Humanity gets worse, not better. 
It does not just have a course correction and we go, well, whoa, when I look back at the 1980s, they were really sinful. But we've cleaned our act up a bit since then. We've got a bit better and a bit smarter. No, we're more wicked than we were in the 80s. And if the Lord tarries, the next decade we'll see more wickedness than exists in our decade. Because sin is a cancer that there is no cure for outside of Jesus Christ. Amen. Sin is not only the cause of our death in this life. You know, if it was just you died and you went into the ground and you became worm food, well, hey, what's the big deal? But sin leads to a godless eternity of torment and suffering. The idea of hell is so abhorrent, so vile, that a lot of churches today try to suggest that it doesn't really exist, that it's a concept. It is as real as heaven. And from some of the descriptions that Scripture gives us, it seems as though the torment of hell will be such that we will wish that we could actually die and somehow turn it off. We will be looking for some way, if we end up in that place, and God forbid that any of us do, but we'll be looking for a way to end it all, but it does not end. Sin introduced a gulf or a separation between a holy God and His creation. That distance between man and God cannot be measured physically. You cannot travel to the outer reaches of space And find where God is, that he's so many light years away from mankind. You can't just physically cross that gap because it is a separation that takes place spiritually. God separates himself spiritually from mankind. Light, the Bible says, cannot dwell with darkness. Holiness cannot dwell with sin. As an author by the name of David Wells so aptly put it, without the holiness of God, sin has no meaning and grace has no point. But God's holiness gives to the one its definition and to the other its greatness. Without the holiness of God, sin is merely human failure, not failure before God. One of the things I really feel like the Lord laid upon my heart when I was preparing this message and praying and studying throughout the week, I believe that as Christians, I'm talking to the church this morning, we would struggle less with sin if we truly understood that all sin was against God and not against one another. What do I mean by that? I mean if we worried about God seeing us or hearing us as much as we worry about others seeing us or hearing us we might be a lot more cautious than we are. Amen. Sin that we commit in secret is after all not a secret from God, but only from others. The Lord said to the Pharisees in Luke 12, verses 2 and 3, He said, For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore whatsoever you have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light. And that which you have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. You know, when you think about, when we read verses like that, let's be honest, in our humanity, the thought of our hidden sins being 
shouted from the rooftops. It's terrifying. It's humiliating. It's embarrassing. It brings shame. But the reality is, those things are present before God the moment that they happen. But we're more worried about the rooftop than the throne room. I'm talking to myself. I'm not saying this is you and not me. If we worried as much about God seeing us as we do about somebody else seeing us, how do you think our behavior would change? Amen. When we sin against another person, we actually sin against God. But we lose sight of that because we measure it in the horizontal. It's one of the reasons we struggle to forgive. Because we're measuring it by someone else's response and their attitude, not what's happened between us and God. And if we could realize when we don't forgive that we actually sin against God, it might just save our souls. Because when somebody sins against you or offends you or does something to you, whether real, perceived, or imaginary, and you don't extend forgiveness... What begins to transform within your heart and begins to spring up is bitterness and hatred. And those things are sinful. And so that's why I have got to forgive my brother or my sister or whoever offends me because for my own soul's sake. Because if I don't, I sin against him regardless of what they did to me. And that's not easy. But if we could change our focus and our understanding and take it off this and put it more on that and begin to understand that I must do this because if I don't, I'm going to be out of of line with God. It'll change the way we approach forgiveness. Many of us know the story of David of how there came a point in his reign where it seemed like all his business was taken care of. The enemies were defeated and there was some, still some skirmishes going on, but his army was out in the battlefield and he was at home in that palace and he went up on the roof in the evening and possibly it was the evening, looked out and saw a beautiful woman bathing. Now, the fact that he saw her was not a sin. He didn't go up on his roof hoping to see somebody having a bath. But he saw Bathsheba. His actions immediately after that, the thought and the intent of his heart that then became demonstrated when he sent for her and entered into an adulterous relationship with another man's wife. She, was, she became pregnant. Listen, the devil is looking for a way that when you yield to temptation, he puts another hook in that you didn't see coming. David wasn't thinking about pregnancy or having kids. He was thinking about the lust of his flesh. And I'm not saying the devil caused that pregnancy, but he he was sure keen for it to happen. And David got that woman pregnant. And then when she sent him a message saying, I'm pregnant, he tried to find a way to cover his sin. And we know, if you know the story, he called her husband in from the battlefield Everything you read about Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, he was a righteous, godly, upstanding man. He was a man whose name meant the light of God. He was not a Jew by birth. He was a Hittite. But such was his character and his integrity that he lived close to the palace, 
he took on a name that reflected the light of God, not any God, but the God. And David tried to get him to cover up his sin, hoping that he'd come back from the battlefield, go and spend some time with his wife. The baby would be considered to be his. There's no pregnancy test. There's no blood test. They're just rounding off maybe. But such was the integrity of Uriah that he refused to go home to the comforts of his house and his wife while his brethren were in the battlefield. So David had to take it to another degree and we know that he sent a letter back. This is a man after God's own heart. This is how far sin will sink its claws into you. That man gave a letter to Uriah. He handed Uriah his own death sentence. said, you take this back to Joab. Now, if I was Uriah, I probably would have read it on the way. Because, you know. But Uriah's integrity was such, he didn't break the seal. He put it in the hand of Uriah, thinking it, of Joab, thinking it had nothing to do with him. And went off to be with his brethren. Joab opens the letter from the king and it says, put Uriah in the hottest part of the battle. And when it's getting intense, draw back. In other words, have him killed on the battlefield deliberately. And that's what took place. And the message came back to David and David so callously basically said, well, some people die on the battlefield, it's a part of war. Took Bathsheba to be his wife. Thought that he covered his sin. But then a preacher by the name of Nathan, a prophet, came into David and told him, I've got a story to tell you, King. And he began that story that many of us know so very well where he said there was a certain man just a poor man. He had one little lamb, one little baby sheep. He loved that thing like it was his own child. It ate from his hand. It ate at his table. He, he couldn't have loved that lamb anymore. And this, this man had a neighbor who had a multitude of sheep. The neighbor had a guest come to visit. And rather than take from his abundance to feed his guest, he took the man's one little lamb and killed it and fed his guest with it. Nathan under the inspiration of God knew exactly what he was doing because David was a shepherd and David's anger rose up within him and he said surely that man is going to be in some serious trouble and then Nathan said king it's you and David was confronted with the horror of his sin what's the point of all of that in Psalm 51 Psalm 51 is a wonderful psalm about David's repentance from his sin. But what I want to point out to you is this. In 51, 3 and 4, David said, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, and thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. He said, against you only, God. And we would say, but what about Uriah? Surely you sinned against Uriah. What about Uriah's family? Probably had brothers or sisters. His parents might have been alive. What about the child that died as a consequence? David wasn't pretending those things hadn't happened. But he was acknowledging that his sin against Uriah was a sin against God. And that that was where the buck stopped. That was where 
he had to answer. Because one man, made in the image of God, betrays and murders another man, made in the image of God. And it is God who is sinned against. In Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 9 to 10, as part of the Lord's judgment upon David, it says, Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord? to do evil in his sight. Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from thy house. Why? Because thou hast despised me. God spoke to David and said, you've despised me and my commandment. His action was horizontal. But God said, you've despised me. That's how we need to understand sin. See, if we sin against one another and we don't think that we've done it against God, it reduces its impact on how we feel. But when you sin against somebody, you do something that is sinful, you need to constantly keep in your mind that's against God, not just against that person. Amen. Bless the Lord. Satan's fall came about because he desired to exalt himself above God. All sin, I'll say this with confidence this morning, all sin is a declaration that our desires, our thinking, our satisfaction, our justification, and our pleasure outranks God and his word. That's why all sin is against God. Because when we sin, we're saying what I want is more important than what he wants. And like Satan, we're exalting ourselves above God. Sin places mankind in a desperate situation. Sin has eternal consequences because God is eternal. And the reality is we are eternal as well. You will exist for eternity. Either in the presence of God which we would call eternal life, or in that place of torment, which is definitely not life, but you will be very conscious when you are there. Amen. The holiness of God and the law of God demands that the consequence of sin is death. There is no wiggle room. There's no opportunity to appeal. There's no fine print that can be used to discover a loophole. God is holy. Sinners violate that holiness. And when I say sin, I'm including all of humanity and are worthy of death. We've earned it. We've earned it. Amen. However, God is not only holy, but God is also love. And our opening text in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read it again in verse 6. It says, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Amen. Let me, let me just clarify what that verse is talking about. To the Jewish mind, to be equal with God was not to be on the same level it was to be God. Because God said, I am the Lord and beside me there is none else. He said, try and find somebody that's my equal. There isn't anybody there. So to be equal with God was a statement that you were God but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form 
of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. The word form is used in verse 6 and verse 7. In verse 6 when it says that being in the form of God, it was not talking about Jesus' physical structure because God is a spirit. God is a spirit. When it's talking about the form of God, it's talking about the essence of God. It's talking about who God is and what makes him God, his divinity, his holiness. It's the fact that in Jesus Christ, the Bible says in Colossians, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. When it says that he was in the form of God, he was not pretending to be God. He was identifying him as God and equal to God. But then in verse 7, he took on him another form. He took on the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He laid aside... Jesus, it was not possible for Jesus to lay aside his deity because that's who he is. But he, as it were, masked his glory so that while he walked among mankind, he was just another man. In fact, the Old Testament said that there was nothing about him and his appearance that we would desire him. He was just an ordinary-looking man. And he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. God knew that the gap between him and us was uncrossable from our side and so he had a plan he wasn't making it up as he went along he had it from the very beginning but desperate times call for desperate measures extreme illness calls for extreme treatment such was our wickedness and this is what we need to get a hold of afresh this morning sin is not some little cut you have on your finger that you can put a band-aid on sin is something that will destroy you for eternity Such was our wickedness that God himself went to an extreme form of treatment. He made a way that he could step from where he was to where we are without violating his holiness. He chose a young virgin named Mary. Miraculously, the Spirit of God caused her to become with child. Now there is, you know... Don't ask me how that works. I'm not God. But he said he did it. Some people say the reason Jesus was able to be sinless was because you inherit your sin nature from your father's side. Some people say other things. That's God's business. What I know is that the creator, the spirit that moved on the face of the waters in the beginning moved on the the womb of a virgin, provided that which was necessary for genuine humanity without sin. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. Amen. The visible, as Colossians chapter 1 tells us, and Hebrews chapter 1, the express image, the visible of the invisible God stepped into time and creation and bridged the gap that had stood there. 
that had existed since Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. That gap was there all the way through human history. And then God, just because He's God, had a plan of how He would come from His side to our side, of how He who is invisible would become visible and make a way where there previously had been no way. Amen. But He did more than just show up. It's incredible that He did what He did and appeared in the first place. But if that's all he did, that'd be an interesting footnote in history and nothing else would have changed. But the one who was in the form of God and equal to God, which means he was God, laid aside glory and took upon himself the form, the essence, the conduct of a servant. And simultaneously, satisfied both his holiness and its judgment and demonstrated his love. When he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, at that point he he satisfied the judgment of God which could not be changed, that the penalty was death. But he also demonstrated love. Only God can do that. Only God can pay a price and demonstrate love in the one action. In that action on Calvary, he both died for me and showed me that he loves me. And the world says, how can God be loved if he's going to judge the wicked? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He's love, but he's also holy. He cannot compromise his holiness. You know, it doesn't, doesn't sit well with modern humanistic thinking, but God is well within his rights as creator to destroy every single one of us. He's within his rights to annihilate the earth as many times as he wants. He could have Noah's flood every second Thursday if he wanted to and start afresh. And none of us could appeal because he's God. And so we dare to say, well, how can God kill this person and judge that person and he's God but he didn't he could just say I'm God and that's the end of the show but he he came the Bible says for God so loved the world that that spirit that is omnipresent that is everywhere at once that cannot be seen took on himself a visible form when his spirit moved upon that young woman's womb he manifests himself in flesh, not somebody else in flesh. Jesus is not part of God. He's not Jehovah Junior that's been sent to do the dirty work. He's God manifest in the flesh, the Bible says. God manifests in the flesh. Why did he have to come? Because blood had to be shed. Something had to die to pay the price for sin. And my blood and your blood is not good enough. And before Bethlehem, he had no blood. So as Galatians 4 and 4 says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, made a woman, made under the law. And that incarnation, that revelation in flesh of God himself, had blood pumping through its veins. Just like you and I did, he looked like every other Jew that walked the streets of Israel, but he'd never sinned, and he would never sin, so that when he went to Calvary, he could say, the debt has been paid. 
and demonstrate His love for us. How can God be love? The creator of the universe took on Him the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. For me and for you. For everything you've ever done and everything you ever will do, He's made a way that we can be clean. Amen. You might say, well, I don't agree with that, and I'm going to keep doing the things I want to do. That's your choice. But it doesn't change the opportunity that God has provided. Because, you see, he didn't stay in the grave. He didn't stay in the grave. First Corinthians, and I don't think I gave you this, these verses, Daniel, but in First Corinthians, around about verse, chapter 15 and verse 20, it says, But now is Christ risen from the dead become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by Adam came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, that's my unsaved condition, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own, or, in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then afterwards they that are Christ at his coming. That's the condition. When he returns, I need to be his. The end of that chapter, which I did give to you, Daniel, I think, verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. It's talking about that gap. If we're corrupt, we cannot get to incorruption. If we're in sin, we can't get to holiness. But then he said, behold... I show you a mystery. He said, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. There's got to be a change. If you're going to be in Christ, if you're going to be His when He comes, there's going to be an initial change here. Then there's going to be another change here where it says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. This is what the world calls Resurrection Sunday. For this corruptible, that's this carcass, must put on incorruption. And this mortal or this body that has an appointment with death is going to put on immortality. So that when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. And the holiness of God exposes those things in us. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, or because of this, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's not a waste of time to live for Jesus Christ. It is not a waste of time. He's coming back for them that are looking for Him. Hallelujah. Why don't you lift your hands and worship Him for just a moment. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.
try and convey something if I can. I want you to imagine that this pulpit represents the barrier between God. Remember, the Gavin, I need you to stand over there. I got the microphone, so I get to be God. You can be God next time. Between God, I don't even like saying that, to be honest. Between God and sinful humanity, there's a gulf. He can't come to me because the holiness of God destroys sin. I can't go to Him just as I am because same problem. But in God's time, again, not just made up on the fly, but God's plan from the very beginning because God knew that desperate times would call for desperate measures. Somehow, that Spirit of God found Himself a way to cross that gap to come and be his brother in humanity to walk to talk to eat with them to travel with them to be tired with them to be hungry with them to experience their humanity the Bible says he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin but again the miracle would be pointless if that was all he did but you see he turned and he went to Calvary Alone, don't go anywhere just yet. Hung his hands out on that cross, gave up the ghost, and died not just from the physical affliction, but from the burden of the guilt and shame of sin. He went into a grave, which is kind of what the gap represents, but he came out the other side in resurrected power. Bible says he's the first fruits of them that slept. That means he's the first one to rise from the dead. Now, you might say, oh, there were people before Jesus that rose from the dead. Yeah, but they died again. He's the only one to rise from the dead and stay risen. And he said, but he's coming back for those that are looking for him that are his. Now, if I'm his, how do I get from there to here? What does the Bible say at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15? Verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, the good news that I preached unto you, which also you have received, you've got to receive it, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory, it doesn't mean memorize, it means you've done something, what I preached unto you, unless you've believed in vain. In other words, if you haven't responded, your belief is useless. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I received, how that Jesus Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture, was buried and he rose again the third day, according to the Scripture. So here's the Lord in his resurrected, glorified sense. And here's Gavin, Brother Gavin, who represents all of us on this side. How do we cross that gap? When they came to the Jews in Acts chapter 2 and said, you crucified him. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, you need to repent. You know what that means? That means that Gavin finds himself at his own cross. Not literally crucified to a wooden crucifix, but at a place where he acknowledges the sacrifice of Jesus Christ lays his own sins down, confesses that he's a sinner. He says, God, I'm walking away from those things. I'm really, I'm sorry. I feel the pain of regret and remorse. 
understanding that that's what put you on Calvary. But then Peter said, and be baptized. And Gavin steps into the tomb. Be baptized, every one of you. How? In the name of Jesus Christ. For what? For the remission of your sins. They're important ingredients. You need your sins washed away. You need the name of Jesus. And I have no desire to offend anybody, but if you've never been baptized in Jesus' name, you're still stained. That's Bible. It's the only name under heaven. Even if you've got the Holy Ghost and God speaks to you, one of the things He's speaking to you right now is that you need to be baptized in His name. It's the only name. It's the only name. He doesn't say, well, if you were sincere and went another way, that's okay. Peter said, you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And then what did he say would happen? He said, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What's the parallel? Jesus came out of the grave. Resurrection power. Book of Romans says, if the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwell also in your mortal bodies, he shall quicken you. He shall make you alive. Amen. Now, here's the thing. Sorry. The reality is we're still living here. Now, Jesus has ascended. Anybody here ascended yet? Pretty sure you wouldn't have come back if you had it. I wouldn't come back. We still live here. But you see, we have a promise. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. You see, if I'm in Christ... When he comes, that door's open. The door's open. And he's coming back. But when he does, because I've done what he said to do, I'm ready. And as, as me and my assistant pastor, and I, by faith, everybody in this building this morning, as we step through that door, in that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. And we shall see him because we shall be like him. Stand with me if you would this morning and lift your thanks, God. Lift your hands and worship him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Don't tell me God is not love. Don't tell me that he doesn't care for you. You made your own mess. I made my own mess. The good news is he said I can wash you. I can clean you. I can make you whole. I can fill you with my spirit. So when that trumpet sounds, something inside of me is going to spring to life like it never has before. And I'm going to step in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. I'm going to inhale in this life and exhale in the other. We need to understand this morning that how desperate we were in our sin. How desperate our situation was. But the extreme measures that he went to for us. The desperate measures were called for because of desperate times. Hallelujah. He didn't give us some self-help manual. He didn't say if you follow these 12 steps... It'll clean your life up. He said, I came and I died for you. And I don't mean to be offensive this morning. But if you've never repented of your sins, today's a good day to find yourself at the foot of the cross.
if you've never been baptized in Jesus' name. The Apostle Paul in his testimony in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16 says, Now why tarriest thou? What are you waiting for? Oh, I was baptized, Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. I'm sorry, that's not biblical. That's tradition. The power, the authority, the identity, the family name is Jesus. Without it, we're still in our sin. I need a musician, please. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus. I believe God wants to change somebody this morning. Hallelujah. Now the devil's been fighting against this message today. Came to church this morning feeling fine, found myself irritable. If you interacted with me before the service, I apologize. Stand on the platform during the worship thinking, what is wrong with me? I began to realize somebody was trying to distract things. Because when you begin to preach about the power of the blood and the power of the name, those things have authority over him. He does not want you to have them. You might say, well, Pastor, I don't, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the sin I'm bound with and I'm shackled with that I've tried to get out of before. I don't need to know. <laughs> he said, let me read it. I don't want to drag on this morning, but let me read it to you. This is a horrible, this is a horrible and a beautiful passage of Scripture at the same time. It says, know you not. In other words, pay attention. Make sure you understand this that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. If he left it there, that's not as too bad. But then he said, don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. That, that verse covers basically any kind of sexual immorality, whether it's outside of marriage, whether it's same sex, whatever it is. If it's not the way God planned it, it's going to keep you out. That's what he said. He said, all thieves, or covetous, or drunkards, includes a large percentage of Australia, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. That's a pretty graphic list. He said, you've been involved in any of these things. You won't go to heaven. But then he said, and such were some of you. And we look around this congregation this morning, there's people wearing ties and ladies all dressed up nice and everybody looks just Christian. But that verse says, that's us. That's me. And that's you. And there's a little three-letter word there that changes everything. It says, but you are washed. You're sanctified. You know what that means? That means he's separating you from those things. You belong to him now. You're justified. In other words, he sees you as righteous. Doesn't matter what you've done. If you're born again, he looks at you and says, They're righteous. I gave them my righteousness. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's Acts two thirty eight again, right there in First Corinthians chapter six. Hallelujah. If you find yourself on that list, again it's conviction. Not condemnation. God is saying, let me wash you. Let me cleanse you. Let me give you that power so that when I come back, you'll be ready to be with me. 
every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. So allow the Spirit of God to search our hearts. Hallelujah.